Uh, I have no intention of twisting your arm for money for Josh. But. But. Uh, and if, you, if, you, if your family doesn't have a missionary you're currently supporting right now, might as well be Josh, right? Uh, he'll be here after church. If you are, man, honestly, even if you just want to hear about what God is doing in that campus ministry and be able to be in prayer for it, grab his contact information and chat with him. Um, God is doing such cool stuff on college campuses around our country. And it's, it's just really cool, really cool to see the way God is moving and the way he's raising up people and sending them into the work. So uh, today we're jumping back into our series in the Psalms. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, you can turn them over to Psalm 52, 52, 51. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles at the end of each row. You're welcome to grab one. Uh, by the way, I would say if you're in this space today and you don't own a Bible, we're really passionate about access to God's Word here at Emmanuel. And so if you don't have one, uh, just take one of those. Or even better, uh, come talk to me and I will get you one with larger print. Because <laughs> those ones are hard to read. Um, I make that same joke every Sunday, and I have never replaced those Bibles. And we're not going to. So, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 51 is where we're going to be today. I have loved this series in the Psalms. And, and the reason I think is just is really simple. You know, Psalms are these, these poems of the faith, these songs, these artistic pieces of Scripture that, that really, I think, give us this unique picture into the heart of the life of faith. You know, the Psalms preach the gospel the same way the entirety of the Bible preaches the gospel, but oftentimes the Psalms tap into how the gospel feels to a human heart in ways that other texts don't. And I think as a result of that, Psalms end up becoming oftentimes these really, these really sacred texts to our personal faith. Most people, if they've been following Jesus for a period of time, have one or two or 10 Psalms that are just really personal and important to your own faith journey. We actually built this series by asking our four pastors to sit down and just write a list of what are the Psalms that have been most impactful in your own faith journey. And we put, took that list and used it to make this whole series, right? Like these are, these are texts that really easily worm their way into our soul and into our, our, the way we articulate and understand our own faith journey, right? Psalm 51 is one of those texts for me. This is a text I come back to a lot in my faith and have come back to a lot in my faith. And when I was in late high school and basically throughout college, I was pretty much a hot mess emotionally and spiritually and all those things. And, and by God's grace, I, I came out of that season with a, a really firm faith and a real like just trust for the Lord and even joy and freedom in the Lord. But if you knew me in that period of time in my life, uh, under the surface, beneath the scenes, I, was, I really was just a roiling mess of emotional unhealth and, and mental health issues and, and sin, like just continued habitual sin patterns that for the most part, I was engaging alone. I wasn't drawing other people into that I was just kind of sitting in during that season of my life. And I'll tell you guys, the grace of God, by the power of the gospel, by the present ministry of his church, God brought me through that season with a strong and firm faith, with freedom in a lot of those areas, and one of the tools God used in my life in that season was Psalm 51. This is a text I came back to often in that season of life. If you were here last week, we were in Psalm 32, which is this psalm of confession and repentance. And what's interesting is thematically, Psalm 51 is pretty much spot on in the same place. If you're familiar with this text, or if you're not, you know, we're about to read it, right? Like, this text pretty much just zeroes in on this idea that sin's a big deal and sin kind of kills your soul, but God is good and he's gracious and he forgives and so you can bring it to him, right? It's very similar thematically to what we saw in Psalm 32 last week. But Psalm 51, I think, gives us a really unique window into that whole idea of bringing our brokenness, bringing our shame, bringing our sorrow to the Lord because it's a very, very intimate psalm. Psalm 51 is a personal prayer. 
You're getting this window into the speaker of the psalm, like into his closet to see all his skeletons. Psalm 51, I tell people this, Psalm 51 almost reads uncomfortably because you feel like you're eavesdropping on someone else's private conversation with God. But I think that's why it's helpful. I think as we dig into this psalm today, even though thematically we're hitting on a lot of the same elements we just talked about seven days ago, I think we're going to see some unique applications and implications of the truth of the the reality of sin and the gracious forgiveness of God that I think will be helpful for us. I think we'll see in Psalm 51 that sin has a real weight, that it's a bigger deal than we like to admit. It's a bigger deal than is comfortable for us to admit. I think we'll see that the the loving grace of God is not just about forgiveness, but it's actually about purification. That, That in his grace, in his love, in his gospel, Jesus doesn't just cover over our sin. He doesn't just forgive it, but he actually takes the stain on our soul and purifies it and cleans it. And I think lastly, we'll see that built in, hand in hand, with the idea of confession is the idea of repentance. That God actually longs for his children to be grown out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. To see us change and become more like him. To see sin actually killed in our hearts and to see our hearts molded in his likeness to become more sanctified, more holy, more like Christ. And the beauty of the whole thing is that Jesus himself empowers that work. It's good stuff. So we're going to get into it. And as we do, I want to put an image in you guys' mind. And this is silly, but hopefully this will help counter some of just how heavy this text is. In the Tunnel House, we have two kids. In the Tunnel House, we're into hand-me-downs. For clothes. Does anyone here, like anyone who had kids, anyone do hand-me-downs? <sighs> hand-me-downs are a lifesaver, amen? Like, unless you just have rich parents, hand-me-downs are wonderful, right? So we are, if you know the Tunnels, I, we, have, we have two kids. My oldest, girl, my oldest uh, is our daughter, Millie, and my youngest is our son, Moses. And hand-me-downs worked fine for Millie. We never had a problem with hand-me-downs for Millie. Hand-me-downs for Moses has been a little different deal. Because here's why. <laughs> Boys tend to wear their clothes a little different. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're just like, if you get hand-me-downs for your boys, you have to make a couple assumptions. The first one is, if it has knees, they will have holes in them. The second one is, if it's made of cloth, it will be stained. Like, that's just how it works, right? Like, and by the way, like, Moses is just as guilty of this. He does, he does nothing to change the stereotype of young boys. There is no such thing as a white shirt to Moses. If there is a white shirt... It's white for about 45 seconds, right? And then it is whatever the color of the food, the dog spit, the dirt, the toy, the Play-Doh. Like, it becomes that color, right? So if you are a hand-me-down family and you get boy hand-me-downs, stains are a way of life. It's just what it is. I don't care what Billy Mays says. There are some things OxyClean can't handle. Trust me, I've tried, right? Like, there are some stains, there are some stains you can't walk back from. That shirt is just brown now. That's how it works. I want you to keep that image in your mind of these hand-me-down clothes covered in stains. And the reason is because one of the main images used in this psalm is about stains and the way God purifies them. And it's pretty intense. It's a heavy text. And so I wanted to give us this kind of lighthearted image on the front end to kind of hold in the back of our mind. And I think it'll help us kind of lock in what this text is teaching to our hearts in some needed ways. Okay, so let's jump into it. Psalm 51 reads thus. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. So purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins. Blot out my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me by by giving me a willing spirit. And I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And your good pleasure cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. It's a lot. It's a heavy text. And if, you're one of the, if, it's, if it's already familiar to you, if this is a text that is part of your faith journey like mine, it might even be like a little triggering to read it, right? Like it brings you back to sorrowful, painful moments in your story when this text rang true to your heart. It's heavy. And again, it, it's almost intrusive. It's like, we're, it's like we're digging into someone else's conversation that we're not supposed to be a part of because it's so, it's so intimate and it's so raw. But here's what I'd like to do with this text today. We're going to put it in its scriptural context. And then we're going to look at those three main movements and a closing blessing to this psalm. So we're going to kind of look at it chunk by chunk at those movements. And honestly, guys, like... Aside from the fact that this is really heavy, the actual message of this psalm is really simple. The speaker talks about the cosmic weight of sin. The speaker talks about the purifying, redeeming ministry of the Lord. And the speaker talks about sanctification and how personal sanctification becomes communal sanctification. And it ends with this larger communal blessing, right? It's honestly a relatively simple text in terms of actually what it's saying. But it, it outweighs that with just how it kind of hits, right? So let's jump into this. This is one of the few psalms that gives us really clear picture of both the author and the occasion of the psalm. You're looking at it in your Bible. It opens by saying, a psalm of David written after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan over the woman Bathsheba. So this psalm tells us exactly when and why it was written and by whom, right? Right? The psalm was written by King David after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. You can read about that story in 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13. And it's a really important story. We will not understand this text without putting it in that context. So, so bear with me as we kind of walk through this piece really quick. If you're not super into Old Testament history, like let's, let's kind of get all on the same page. So King David of Israel is a really interesting and important figure in the Old Testament. He's a dude who was born in relative obscurity, the youngest son of a relatively wealthy guy, started his life out as a shepherd in the early monarchy of Israel, under the first king of Israel, King Saul. David eventually kind of proved his worth in battle, and it was able to work his way up in the military of Saul and become kind of a, kind of a minor war leader in the larger Israelite army. But what happened that changed all that was that King Saul rejected his covenant with the Lord, and God took away his anointing and took away his spirit from Saul and said, you're no longer my set-apart king. And then he called the prophet Samuel to go and anoint David, the new king of Israel. Now, here's the problem with that. Saul still was alive and had an army and had power. And so it didn't go well for David. He spends the next several years of his life on the run, being chased and hunted continually by Saul, who became obsessed with killing David. David ends up living the next several years in the wilderness, if we're honest, as kind of a wandering warlord. He gathers this army of mercenaries and ruffians around him, and they make their money taking private military contracts. It's pretty intense. 
Eventually, Saul is killed in battle. And after a brief civil war between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, David is anointed and established as the unified king over Israel. Except that Israel isn't actually all that unified at that point. And so even though David is king, he spends the first several years of his reign just working his tail off, fighting battles, squashing rebellions, taking back territory that was lost as the kingdom of Israel weakened under Saul's leadership, restoring borders, spends literal years before his kingdom is strong enough and established enough that he can finally build a palace and establish his capital in the city of Jerusalem. So now, after living the majority of his adult life as a warrior on the battlefield, hiding, being hunted, continually having his life in danger, King David finally has a city, he has a palace, he's brought the tabernacle and the ark to Jerusalem, and he is ready for some well-deserved rest. So, when another border skirmish rises up, David says, I'm not doing this one. I'm done with this. So he sends his ruthless general and military leader, Joab, to go squish it. And he goes, you go take care of that. I'm going to hang at home. And so he does. And 2 Samuel 12 picks up with David just kind of restlessly hanging out in Jerusalem while all of his soldiers have gone off to do battle for him. And in the context of that, he becomes infatuated with one of his war leader's wives. And he ends up bringing her to his palace and having his way with her and impregnating her. And rather than doing what is right at that moment, rather than owning that decision and that series of decisions, instead, he calls the woman's husband home from war, Uriah, one of his war leaders, and basically says, hey, you need to go sleep with her and claim this kid. I don't want to deal with this mess. And Uriah goes, no, we're not doing that. And so David's response is to send Uriah back to the battlefield with orders for Joab to abandon him on the battlefield so he'll be killed. And Joab, if you read the story, he's pretty ruthless. And he goes, sure, fine, cool. And has Uriah killed and sends word back to David, he's dead. At this point, David takes the mourning widow and marries her, who's pregnant with his son. It's pretty intense. That's the context for Nathan coming to confront King David, right? If you pick up in in 2 Samuel 12, that's where the text picks up. Stuff has fallen apart in David's life, but here's what's really important to understand this text. If you go back and read this section in 2 Samuel, you just kind of get appalled the more you read. You're like, the heck? How is this guy? Is this, this is the guy they call the man after God's heart? This guy's terrible. Here's the thing you need to know. No one in that day, in that culture, in that place, including the vast majority of Israelites, would have batted an eye at what David did. This was not strange behavior for a Middle Eastern king. In that day, in that culture, the word of the king was law. The desire of the king was law. The whims of the king were law. In that day, no one would have thought what David did was even mildly inappropriate. He was acting purely, like right in line with exactly how kings of his day treated their people and treated their subjects. Here's the problem. David was not called to be a king like the kings of his day. Israel was to be a set-apart people. The king of Israel was to be a set-apart king who is to represent the will of God to the people, who is to lead Israel to be a holy nation, a set-apart place where people would see, surely the God of the Israelites is real. Look at his people. Look how blessed they are. Look how they live. And David lowered himself to the standards of the world around him and lived how everyone expected a king of his power and his strength and his caliber to behave. So when Nathan shows up, David has no concept that he's in trouble for this. Has no concept that this is even a big deal. He's not trying to hide it. And so Nathan comes and shares this parable with him. He goes, hey, God told me to give you this story. So there are these two neighbors, right? One's super rich, one's super poor. The rich one has like a bajillion sheep. 
just like sheep for days. The other guy's really poor. He only has one sheep. Well, the rich guy, uh, he has a guest one night and needs to feed the guy dinner. He doesn't want to give him any of his sheep. So he goes, robs his neighbor, steals the only sheep he has, kills it and slaughters it and feeds it to his guest. And David is not a fan of this story. I'm going to read this to you. This, start, this picks up in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 5. David responds like this. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity? Well, he must pay, he must pay four lambs for the one that he stole. I love that it's the currency as lambs. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I put them into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Was that not enough? I would have given you more. Why have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I bring disaster on you and your family. I'll take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. He will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all of Israel in the middle of the day. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to Bathsheba will die. And then Nathan went home. Our text tells us that David wrote this psalm in response to that meeting. He has that meeting with Nathan. He is ripped asunder. He has shown exactly the ways he has failed his covenant. By the way, he's the king because the previous king rejected his covenant with God. He was given this ministry because Saul rejected his covenant with God. And here's David doing the same, heading down the same road, being the same sinful, selfish person. It's intense, right? But David's response, contrition, repentance. The difference between, the only difference between David and Saul. Saul never repented. To the bitter end, he said, I deserve to be king. You have to anoint me. David saw his sin and said, I have sinned against you, Lord. I've done what I ought not. I've sinned against you. Comes the Lord with a broken heart and God forgives him. I want you to think about this. Nathan leaves and goes home and there's David sitting in his palace. All the fruit of all his work with his brand new wife who's pregnant. With all his wealth, with all his comfort. Sitting there alone knowing exactly what he did. In that context, at some point in those few months leading up to the birth and death of that son, David pens Psalm 51. He writes this text. His prayer to the Lord. His coming to the Lord in the midst of his shame, in the midst of his failure, in the midst of his sin. And we're given this window into the, the, the raw expression of confession and repentance and forgiveness that David experiences with the Lord. It's intense. It's a heavy text. I think we have to put it in that context because it, it's, this text hits so hard. It, it goes straight for the heart, right? And it can be easy to kind of be like, wow, this is intense, and kind of downplay it as we engage it. But we have to remember what was the occasion of this psalm. This is not a happy day for David as he writes this. He's in a dark place. He sees the effects of his sin harming and hurting other people. He knows the weight of what he's done and he brings it to the Lord. 
So we're going to walk through this psalm, three different movements. In the first movement, we see David's confession. In the second movement, we see David's call, his, his begging, his beseeching forgiveness and purification. In the third movement, we see David's repentance and we see his sanctification. And then it ends with this communal blessing. So, first movement. In this part of the text, we are smacked in the face with the importance of real, sober confession. I mean, as you go through those first five, six, seven verses, right? Like David does not dance around the issue. He does not sugarcoat it. His confession is raw. It's brutal. It's as transparent as it can possibly be, which by the way, why wouldn't it at that point, right? When God sends his prophet to be like, here's what you did. There's not much point in going back and being like trying to downplay it with God, right? Like at that point, everyone who needs to know knows and they know all of it. So David, David brings his confession fully to the Lord. And if you look at like the language he uses here, it's it's intense. I think this is so important for us reading this today. We need to understand the weight of sin. And make no excuse for it. That's that's hard for me. I don't know if that's hard for you. But just to own the weight of sin and not make excuses for it. God is just when he demands righteousness. That's a sentence that's kind of painful to spit out. But it is right and good for our holy and righteous God to have the standard of holiness. It's who he is, and it's his creation, not ours. And yet every single one of us, every single one of us chooses rebellion. We know that. We know in our heart of hearts that we are bent towards sin. Beloved, this is the reality of the chasm between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And by the way, this is not distant and abstract. This is home and personal in your guts and my guts right here and right now. This is me and you. I love to sin. I do. If I didn't, I wouldn't choose to do it continually. That's brutal to say it that way, but we know that's true. You're a human being and God made you with a will. You do what you want. You wouldn't be sinning as much as you did if you didn't want to. Truth. I'm corrupted. I'm selfish. I'm sinful. I'm a fan of the band King's Kaleidoscope. If you guys have heard them, we do some of their songs or arrangements every now and then. I like them a lot, but I won't dig into that right now. Several years ago, they did a, 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 some special music for a Good Friday service, and they did this arrangement of this song uh, called What Have We Done? It's an intense song that's just about sitting in the weight of human sin. And there's this line that's repeated in the song where he says, he says, Judas sold you for 30, but I would have done it for less. It's heavy to sit in that truth, to sit in that confession that there is something wretched in our soul. When we admit that we actually love sin and that rebellion against the just and holy God is something we do because we enjoy it, Guys, I need you to hear this. That's just us being honest. That's just us telling the truth. That's not not like some hyper over spiritual thing. That's just taking the shroud off of our heart and going, honestly, that's what's really there. I want you to look at at David's actual confessions. He, He builds his entire prayer upon this sober understanding of who we are as humans and who God is. Beloved, we are rebellious sinners. This is deep in our bones. Look how David describes the truth of his own sin as he, as he weighs the weight of it. He puts his sin in cosmic scale. Against you alone have I sinned, God. I feel like Uriah would have something to say about that, right? But, but David is, 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 is putting it in this grand scheme of you are the holy and righteous God. You are the one who actually sets the standard that what I did is wrong. And I went against you, rejected you, 
He admits his own guilt. You are just in your judgment against me. He owns how his sin, and I think this is so important, he owns how his sin is not a mistake, not a series of bad decisions, but a part of his very character. He says, I've been guilty since I was born. He takes that and says, I'm not a good guy who messed up. I'm a bad guy. That's intense. David holds nothing back in this confession. And again, why would he? Which I think comes home to us. This is the part that's not as much fun in this text. It gets to a good part, trust me. We've got to start here. What does confession look like in our life? How does it sit with you to hear your pastor say like five times in five minutes, rebellious, evil, selfish sinner is who you are? It's not fun. You sin because you want to. It's not a good thing to hear. It's not pleasant. But beloved, we must be honest with ourselves. We must be sober in how we view ourselves. There is a reality that God made this world perfect. God made it perfect. We're the rebellious ones. We're the sinful ones. We're the ones who chose to break what God built. And every single one of us, every, and you guys are wonderful people. I love you guys, and I mean that. But every single one of you, when given the choice between eternal perfection and holiness with Christ and sinful rebellion, you chose rebellion. It's in your bones. You're bent toward it. So, honest question. How honest are you about that with God? When you speak to him, when you come to him, how much do you try and shape the way your heart looks in that prayer? How much do you try and sugarcoat? How much do you even bring it up? Is confession a part of your prayer life? You have regular times where you come to the Lord and bear your heart to him. I'm going to tell you guys, that's not fun, but it's so important. It's so important. It's important for several reasons that we see here in this text. The first one is, beloved, God already knows. He sees you soberly. He sees you more clearly than you see yourself. Beloved, he sees the worst parts of you that you don't even have enough clarity to identify yet. All the pieces of us that bring us our deepest shame, all the pieces of us that we hate, all the injustices and wrongs and hurts done to us, all the ways that our flesh bubbles out of us in shameful, sinful, rebellious ways, God sees every ounce of it. You are not not hiding anything from him. You are naked before him. Body, mind, soul. He made you. He sees every atom of you. He can see every way that you fall short of his holiness. And that stinks. Except for one amazing truth. That the holy, righteous, perfect, just, creator God of the universe sees you in your sin and approaches you. And calls out to you and makes a way for you from sin to holiness, from rebellion to inclusion, from stain to perfection. He does not reject you in your sin. He does not give the just judgment of your sin. Rather, he comes to you in love and mercy and grace and peace and invitation. Look how the text moves on. The second chunk of this text, David moves to this kind of supplication for forgiveness. When you get into kind of verse 6 through through 12, you see David starting to move into this idea of, Lord, this is who I am. I need you. I need you to forgive me. And I love this, right? Because David, David has gone out of his way to be as raw as he can about his sin. I didn't just make a mistake, God. I am really, really sinful. It is in my very bones. I need you. And he uses these images. Cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me whiter than snow. 
These are important images. Hyssop connects back to the the Levitical priesthood and the way the sacrificial laws worked. And according to the Sinai covenant, when you sinned, you could could bring an offering to the Lord, right? And the priest would sacrifice it and he would intervene between you and the Lord and your sin would be covered. And you go back and read Leviticus 1 through 9 and read about the sin offerings. And each one of those offerings ends with this beautiful thing where the priest will accept the offering. The Lord will accept your offering and your sins will be forgiven, right? That's how each of those texts ends. And if you go back and look at the sin offering specifically, when the blood was spilled for the sin offering, the priest would take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the blood and sprinkle it on the altar and sprinkle it on you as this symbol of your purification. As this, this picture of your sin is being taken from you. You're right before the Lord again. So David is approaching the Lord as his priest. And I'm unclean. My sin is in my bones. It's in my identity. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to make me holy. I need you to change something fundamental about me because I am unclean. I'm unholy. And then he uses this imagery of the stain, right? I want you to wash me. Wash me and make me white as snow. Remove the blemishes. Remove the stains. Take this out of me. I love this. It is an impurity in our very person that makes us unable to be in the presence of God. What we see in this text is that we worship a God who doesn't just approach us with love and grace and patience and kindness in our sin. He doesn't even just forgive our sin. Beloved, he delights to forgive sin. But he doesn't just forgive sin. He also cleanses. He washes. He he takes the hyssop and sprinkles upon you and you are clean. He doesn't just forgive an offense. He washes a stain out of our very soul and makes us pure white as snow. Come on, church. This is the gospel. Not just a moving over offense, not just a covering over offense, but a fundamental washing of the very person. Fundamental change of your state in creation rebellious sinner to pure and holy. Come on. In this third section, verse 13 through 17, you see David's response to God's grace. And it gets into this whole piece how we, we talk about how repentance and forgiveness and confession and repentance, they go hand in hand. David doesn't just confess his true heart and bear himself before the Lord and engage in the amazing, gracious gospel of the Lord to forgive him and purify him. He also... He also seeks out what the Old Testament calls the wisdom of the Lord. He talks in this third section about how because of what you have done, I will respond in these ways. I will take your wisdom. I will speak of your goodness. I will preach who you are. I will experience joy in my salvation. I will live in connection with you, right? It's all these pieces of how how David is, is saying he will respond to the purifying, forgiving work of the Lord. What the Old Testament calls the wisdom of God to allow us to live with the Lord. What the New Testament calls sanctification. What it calls repentance. Repentance fundamentally means in the Bible Changing your mind, modifying yourself to be more like Christ. Sanctification means becoming more holy, more sanctified. What David is saying here is because of what you have done, I will seek you out. I will seek to bend my life around you. I will seek to draw others in. I will seek to be more like you. And there's this beautiful piece in the midst of this where he says, I need you to give me a willing spirit to do this. Because that's how sanctification works. God doesn't just approach us in our sin. He doesn't just forgive our sin, although he delights to do both those things. He doesn't just purify your sinful and stained and dead soul, although he delights to do those things, beloved. He also gives you his wisdom. His spirit lives with you. He empowers you to be changed, to be different to become more like him, to grow in holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow, hear this, 
to grow in distaste for sin. That sin that you currently love, that you choose to run to over and over and over. The grace and power of God changes your palate and makes such activities distasteful. And it may take months or years or decades of your life, but that is the promise of the Lord. That the Spirit of God will empower you and sanctify you and change you. And you can live and walk in the beautiful freedom of God. Now there's something important here, and it's kind of how we're going to land this thing today. There's this part of this text where David says, he says something strange. He says, I would offer a sacrifice if that's what you wanted. But I know you don't. Which is weird. Because this text was written underneath the Sinai Covenant. And there's a whole book all about how God does actually kind of want those things. Right? (laughs) The whole point of the Sinai Covenant is, hey, you can be connected to God. And so when you sin and when you're disconnected from him, you can be restored to covenant by offering these sacrifices. But then David pushes on that idea and goes, that's not what you really want. He's not saying the scripture is untrue here. He's getting at this, this temptation that existed within Israel that we must be aware of. And it was this temptation toward legalism. What David is getting at here is he goes, man, in our day, when we sin and we reject your covenant and we love sin and we choose rebellion over and over and over and over and over, I can just live completely numb to how evil that sin is because I know that I can just show up to temple and sacrifice a sheep and say the right words and the priest will sprinkle me and I'll be good. But David is saying, that's not sufficient. Just doing, just checking a box and doing some actions with a heart that's hardened and callous and doesn't bear the weight of sin and doesn't confess and doesn't repent. That doesn't save you to go and do those works. No, those works only matter if the heart's in the right place. So David pushes on this for Israel then. But beloved, we would be in a dangerous space today if we read this text and didn't reflect on the same temptations that exist for us. I would say even more temptations that exist for us. On the other side of the cross, on the other side of the grace of Jesus, yes, we can fall into the ditch of legalism, but we can also overswing that pendulum and fall into the ditch of licentiousness. We can go either way and overcorrect and miss out on the beauty of confession, repentance, purification, and sanctification. We can live into legalism just as people could in David's day. We can say, listen, I'm a good church person. I do the stuff I'm supposed to do. I go every Sunday. I tithe. I even set up my tithe to auto pay. And I sign up for whatever GC the pastor tells me to. And I've gone to Sunday school classes and discipleship classes. So I'm good. I even served in children's ministry 10 years ago. I'm good. God doesn't care about this area of my heart that is hardened that I'm avoiding talking to him about. I'm doing all the stuff he wants me to do. We're good. Beloved, that's a lie. It's a lie. You can't be good enough at church to make a holy and righteous, just God overlook sin in your heart. You can't. By the way, I would say that some of us in a space like this have been really struggling with this sermon because your temptation is towards self-hatred and ripping yourself to shreds you've heard me talking about sin this whole time. You're going, yeah, I am the most terrible, awful, wretched creature ever. I would tell you guys, I believe that temptation towards self-hatred and self-destructive thoughts is another form of legalism. I'm sorry to hit you a little harder today, but it's because I love you and I think you need this. That's you. That is my temptation very often. Because self-hatred is taking on the form of Jesus' judgment and saying, I can do that better than you can. I'll go ahead and punish myself for all these sins. I'll go ahead and treat myself like garbage. You don't even have to do it, God. I'll go ahead and do it for you. I'm probably better at it, actually. Beloved, I need you to hear something. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. They've already been paid for. You don't need to double pay. They've already been paid for. You can't hate yourself enough to somehow weigh more than the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You can't. Beloved, your your sin has already been washed in the blood of Christ. 
He is so much better at that than you are. Don't hate yourself. Don't rip yourself to shreds. Christ took that. The other piece to that is licentiousness. We have access to grace. And we can run to the cross and be forgiven over and over and over. And so some of us, we do what we talked about last week. And we let our sin, instead of it being a burden on our backs that we want to be freed from, we just make it into our ruck and we get ripped carrying it around with, with no intention of ever actually confessing and repenting and seeing that removed in our life. Because why would we? God's gracious. He knows about it anyway. He invited me into his kingdom, so we're good. But to do that is to dismiss the holiness of God. Beloved, just because the God of the universe is willing to condescend to you and draw you out of the muck and mire of your rebellion and sin does not mean that he is less holy. It does not mean that he is like you. He is holy and righteous and perfect. And sin is cosmic in its scale. It is rebellion against the creator. I don't say that to beat you up. I say that to say, don't, don't trick yourself. Don't deceive yourself by saying, I can go on sinning so that grace may abound. Beloved, by no means. Your sin matters. Confess it. Repent of it. Because God will meet you with grace. And God will meet you with purification. And God will meet you with sanctification. He will grow you away from that sin. He will kill that sin in your life. He will move your heart from loving sin to loving righteousness. He will. You need only come to him afresh. Come to him in confession. Real confession. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't downplay it. There is no point. It doesn't help. It doesn't change what God already knows about you. All it does is change your ability to engage the grace he has for you. Come to him raw. With real confession. Hold nothing back. When was the last time you prayed prone on the ground, face on the floor before a holy and righteous God? I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Come before the Lord with real, raw confession. See what he does. I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll approach you. He'll forgive you. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross, he will cleanse you and purify you and make you holy. Through his spirit and dwelling in your person, he will draw you to be more like him. He will slowly, over the course of your life, kill the sin that is in you and mold you in his image so that when you look back over the course of your faith journey, you will actually see where he chiseled away the bits of you that are selfish and self-centered and formed them in his own likeness so that the sins that you loved and ran too young in your faith are detestable to you as you mature in your faith. And when you enter into eternity, you will be like him. Beloved, that is free and available for you. That's what it means to come to the Lord in confession and repentance. To rely on his work accomplished on your behalf. To just be honest about what your heart's actually like. And receive the free gift of grace. You know what's amazing about the grace of God? He doesn't give it because of our merit. Look at what David said. David deserved what Saul got or worse. God doesn't give grace because of our merit. He gives it because of his character, because of who he is. He is faithful. He is holy. He is gracious. He is loving. And beloved, you have access to that. You have access to it here and now, today. No matter how stained your heart is, no matter how ruined you feel, by the reality of the curse, the decisions you've made, the decisions made that were beyond your control, injustices and wrongs done to you, injustices and wrongs that you delighted in doing, regardless of what brought your soul to the place it is here today, beloved, the God of the universe approaches you with grace and love, with real forgiveness, with real purifying gospel, with a spirit that will sanctify you, that will include you and keep you. Chris, if you want to come up, this text ends with this blessing. 
where he basically all of a sudden like flips the switch and he's like, God bless Israel. I think it's an interesting way to end the text. (laughs) But I think it's a good little reminder for us. Many of us, if we've been in church a long time, are very concerned about the direction our culture is heading. Whether it's our country, our city, our church, our denomination, whatever it is, a lot of us get this chip on our shoulder of fill-in-the-blank culture is going to hell in a handbasket. You know what's an amazing reminder in this text? Cultures and nations and denominations and movements are made up of people. And if people are going the wrong way, there's one way to fix it. Come to the Lord Jesus in confession. Real confession. Raw, honest, painful confession. To receive the grace and love of Jesus. The forgiveness of Jesus that is freely available. The purification of Jesus that is joyfully given. The sanctification of Jesus that is promised through his spirit. That's how people change and that's how peoples change. So if you are concerned about filling the blank, going to hell in a handbasket, that's fine and probably good. Let's start with our own hearts and bring them afresh to Jesus, even today. I talked way too long. So here's what I'd like to do today. I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes, myself included, to just sit. And I would encourage you if it's been a while, if it's just been a while since you've come to the Lord in confession, I'd encourage you to take a few minutes and do that right now. Whether you're in this space and you're still debating whether or not you even want to come to the Lord for salvation, or you're in this space and you've been following Jesus for decades, I would encourage you, let's, let's just take a few minutes and let's be real with Jesus about our hearts. Don't hide it, don't sugarcoat it, Just open it up and show it to him. Do what he says to you. Let's sit in that for a few minutes and I'll come back up and I'll pray and we'll end at our time.